Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to part two of this two-part episode. If you haven't yet watched part one, then please head to the link in the description below so you can catch up with where we are in the story. And then come back here to pick up where we've left off. Also, whilst we're here, and before we get started, if you haven't done so already, then I'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe by using the button below, and also hit that bell notification icon so you get notified every time I upload a new video, and so you don't miss out. Also, if you'd like to support the show even more, and just generally be an incredible human being, then you can donate via Patreon by checking out patreon.com forward slash London, or by clicking the link in the show notes below. Previously, on Macabre London. We learned the story of Veronica Duncan, who married Lord Lucan. We delved into Veronica's cold upbringing, the death of her own father when she was very young, and the subsequent rash decision made by her mother to move Veronica and her baby sister to South Africa before returning home to the UK and sending them both off to boarding school. We covered her subsequent move to London after her education, the setting up of her own printing company, and the introduction to Lord Lucan she received from her sister Christine and her brother-in-law William. Later down the line, we heard about her struggle with motherhood and the eventual descent of her marriage into an embittered divorce after a failed affair which saw Lord Lucan trying to commit her to a mental institution, Lord Lucan legally kidnapping his own children, and an 11-day trial where Veronica had to prove in court that she was mentally fit enough to care for her three children. We also touched on Lucan's dependency on gambling, his tendency toward making ill-advised and rash decisions, and his growing violence towards Veronica, and his eventual and inevitable departure from the family home. <sighs> so we'll be picking up where we left off, the end of the last episode, and rejoining the now-separated couple at the end of their court case for their children. London today is a bustling metropolis, an exciting place to visit, 
and a somewhat safe place to call home. An eclectic mix of people from all over the world live in London, and the crime rate is dropping year on year. In some parts of this vibrant capital, the crime rate is lower than that of much smaller cities in other parts of the UK. However, things haven't always been so safe. Stories and tales of old have echoed around the streets and grown to become that of legend, particularly those of a gruesome nature. Today we'll be exploring one of these stories and discovering about London's often bloody past. My name is Nikki Drees and this is Macabre London. After the long and bitter trial for custody of the couple's three children, Lord Lucan became an increasingly bitter and desperate character. The divorce was still rattling on after the custody battle, as divorces were difficult to execute before the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1973. The law didn't make it easy to dissolve a marriage, meaning the two were still legally bound, although there was no logical reasoning behind it, but this meant that Lucan was still financially responsible for his family. With the cost of the legal battle now weighing heavy on Lucan, he turned to more and more gambling to win back his debt, but this wasn't proving fruitful, and the descent into poverty began. He was now finding his gambling to be more and more difficult to carry out, as places were stopping him from being able to play at their clubs, as a result of him not being able to pay his debts. Lucan was racking up loans with many different banks, meaning most of which were now turning down his applications for any more money. And new banks were also following suit and refusing his requests. As a result, John was now seeking loans from friends and family, and had managed to rack up debts in excess of over £50,000, which in today's money is around £600,000. During this time, Lucan had started drinking more and having dubious conversations with his friends about how Veronica was a burden and an inconvenience for him. In one conversation, that later became recounted to the police by Greville Howard, whom Lucan had a run-in with over his interest in Veronica before their marriage ended, Lucan drunkenly told Greville of his plans to murder Veronica and often thought about dumping her body in the Solent just to make things a bit easier for himself. Lucan also told the Aspinall family, who owned the Claremont Club, about how his life would be easier should Veronica be out of the picture. The house the couple owned was signed over to Veronica in the custody battle, as this was the family home, and as such was the logical place to raise the pair's children. In 1973 there had been a property boom, leading house prices to increase rapidly by 24%, meaning the couple's family home would have substantially increased in value since their original purchase. All Lucan could see in the family home was a cash pile of bricks and mortar that was being held hostage by Veronica. If Lucan could free up the money, he could pay off at least some of his debts, or more likely invest the money back into gambling. Not helped by characters who were encouraging him, such as John Aspinall, Lucan was used as a high-stakes gambler within his club to raise the profile of his games and to entice others into incrementally raising the stakes in order to keep up with the Lord and so as to not lose face. This must have had a somewhat increasingly claustrophobic influence on Lucan, who wouldn't have been able to escape his gambling as he was encouraged to do it, 
and also didn't have any other form of income to fall back upon, making his cyclical behaviour inescapable. It's also no wonder that those that were encouraging him didn't go to the police when they heard of his plans for Veronica. As if he were to be removed from the inner circle, his influence couldn't be exploited to make others profit. By this time, back at the family home, Veronica was finding things tough after the custody case. Having previously lived off John's gambling money, and what with the payments, food delivery and even the milk bill going unpaid, she took it upon herself to once again become responsible for her income and took a job at a local hospital, bringing in some revenue to the household. During this time, Veronica was struggling to find a nanny that was interested in caring for the children, as many who took on the job found that they really didn't need it by this time. They were older and not really in need of the care reserved for that of younger children. This meant the work the nanny had to carry out was more home care and less childcare, which didn't appeal to many. After going through several nannies in a relatively short period of time, Veronica contacted a local Belgravia nanny service who began searching their books for someone suitable and assigned a new enlistee of theirs, Sandra Rivett, to the home of Lady Lucan, so she could meet the children and see how they got on. Sandra was a hit with all three children, and Veronica was very pleased in particular with how responsive Frances was to her, as all of the other nannies had struggled with her being accepting of them. Veronica said that Sandra understood the situation between her and Lord Lucan, and also had her own experiences to bring to the table in regards of her own situation involving her own sons back at home. Sandra Hensby came from Croydon. At the age of two, Sandra had been taken by her parents to live in Australia, where her and her brother and sister stayed for 10 years before returning to the UK. Sandra studied hairdressing for a while, but wasn't too taken with the profession. She then went on to become a secretary, and after a rather nasty end to a relationship, she admitted herself for a short stay in a mental hospital to treat the subsequent depression. After her short stay, Sandra obtained a job as a nanny for a local doctor and enjoyed the work. However, not long after she got into another relationship with a man called John, but again, this one wasn't to last. But this time, there was added baggage as Sandra had just discovered she was pregnant. In March 1964, at the age of just 19, Sandra gave birth to a baby boy, but with her relationship having failed and it being highly frowned upon for a young woman to have an illegitimate child born out of wedlock, Sandra made the difficult decision to give him up for adoption, but instead her parents said they would raise the little boy so he could still have contact with Sandra later in life when she was in a position to be able to care for him. Looking for a change in scenery and an excuse to leave Croydon, Sandra moved to Portsmouth in the south of England in 1965 to live with her older sister, and it was here she met Roger Rivett, who she fell in love with, and the two married back in her hometown of Croydon in 1967. Roger then took a job away from home, and in the interim, Sandra found herself pregnant again, but it wasn't anything to do with Roger. Instead, she'd created an accident with a married estate agent, and the two had sought solace in each other when their respective other halves had been out of town working. Realising what Sandra had been up to, Roger filed for divorce and the two split not long after Sandra had given birth to another baby boy. But unfortunately for Sandra, she again found herself with an illegitimate child for whom she couldn't provide. So again, she sent him off to be adopted, but this time outside of the family, meaning she would never see him again. 
After her tumultuous early years, Sandra, at the age of 29, decided she would start her life over again and registered for a domestic agency in Belgravia. Sandra met with Veronica and the two bonded quickly and got on very well. Perhaps both of them recognised each other's struggles and could relate to their previous mishaps. Veronica told Sandra of all the issues she had endured with her children and Lord Lucan and this must have struck a chord with Sandra as she took up residence in the family home and found herself as more of a friend than an employee to Veronica. They were said to share clothes, watch TV together, and most importantly, Sandra looked after the children with a softer touch than some of the previous nannies had done. And they appreciated this, as did Veronica, who finally felt she'd found someone who understood exactly the way that she wanted her children to be raised. On the night of the 7th of November 1974, Veronica was watching TV with her eldest daughter Frances in her bedroom, and the other two children had just been put to bed by Sandra. Sandra had swapped her regular evening off, as she would usually be out with her boyfriend on a Thursday evening, but instead had made plans with him on Wednesday that week, meaning she was in the house on a night that she usually wouldn't be. After putting George and Camilla to bed, Sandra popped her head around Veronica's bedroom door at around 8.40, asking if she would like a cup of tea, to which Veronica said yes, but she'd make them so Sandra could put her feet up. Sandra insisted on making the tea as she was already up, so headed down to the kitchen located in the basement. With a fully loaded empty tea tray, Sandra descended the flight of stairs leading into the kitchen, trying the light switch, but realised that the bulb wasn't working, so she descended into the basement in the dark, As she stepped from the bottom step into the dark basement, Sandra was struck in the back of the head with a metal pipe by an unseen attacker. It's unknown how many blows to the head Sandra endured, but it was widely understood by the team of forensics that inspected her body that the initial blow would have knocked her out before any further trauma was inflicted upon her. The attacker bundled Sandra's lifeless body into a waiting mail sack ready to be taken away from the house to be indiscriminately disposed of. The attacker then headed up the stairs to wash off the blood from their hands. By this time, back in the bedroom where Veronica and Francis had been continuing to watch TV, the pair conversed about how long Sandra was taking with the tea, so Francis said she would head down to check on her whereabouts, but Veronica said she would go instead. Veronica headed downstairs and called for Sandra, but there was no reply. Just as Veronica reached the bottom of the stairs from the bedroom, and before descending into the basement, she heard someone in the downstairs washroom and assumed it was Sandra. As the door flung open, she noticed it wasn't Sandra, but in fact said it was her estranged husband. He lunged towards Veronica and grappled her to the floor. She began screaming, and trying to silence her, he then put his hand into her mouth. Whilst doing so, three of his fingers went into her esophagus, damaging the back of her throat. He then delivered several blows to her head with a metal pipe. The outcome was not the same with Veronica as it was with Sandra. She wasn't instantly knocked out, and realising what was about to happen to her, she fought for her life. Veronica put up a good fight against her opponent, who was considerably larger than her. She kicked him as he tried to strangle her, she scratched him as he tried to put his fingers into her eyes, and she grabbed at his genitals with such force that this stopped him from attacking her. Exhausted and both in pain, the pair sat on the floor in shock. Still confused as to where Sandra may be, she asked the attacker 
and he said, she's dead in the basement, don't look. Veronica knew she would have to think fast about what to do next, because it wouldn't be long before the attacker regained enough strength to deliver a final blow. In absolute fear, she knew that she could talk her way out of the situation and offer a solution which would make the attacker think he would still be able to reach his goal of killing her. She pleaded for her life, but then quickly changed her tactic to be more cooperative. The attacker asked if she had any sleeping tablets, to which she said yes, they were upstairs in her bedroom. He shoved Veronica upstairs, and when entering her bedroom, where Francis was, he ordered her to go to bed in her own room, which she dutifully did. The attacker shoved Veronica on the bed and inspected her injuries. He then asked where her sleeping tablets were and fetched a towel to mop up the blood from her wounds. Sitting down on the bed next to her, Veronica said she would take some sleeping tablets but needed water to wash them down. The attacker stepped into the bathroom to fill up a glass and in this moment Veronica seized her only opportunity to escape and hoped that it would work. As soon as the tap was on, she took advantage of the noise obstruction and leapt to her feet, ran out of the bedroom, down the stairs and straight out the front door. As soon as Veronica's feet hit the pavement, she sprinted for her life to the nearest place where she could obtain help. She headed straight for the pub one minute away, the plumber's arms. She burst in through the door and exclaimed, Help me, I've just escaped from being murdered. The patrons of the pub helped her onto a bench where she could lay down and then called the police in an ambulance. And when they arrived, Veronica was sent straight to hospital so her injuries could be treated. The police headed from the pub to number 46 Lower Belgrave Street to assess the situation. They obtained forced entry through the front door which was shut. When entering the scene, they first checked on the children on Veronica's instruction and found them to all be asleep in their bedrooms. To avoid disturbing them, they left them sleeping and continued on with their search of the house. They descended into the basement and found, as they'd been told by Veronica, a body. A large royal mail sack was to the right of the foot of the basement stairs, and visible to the officers was a lifeless arm draped. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Out of the top. The mail sack was surrounded by a pool of blood which had two large footprints in it and a large amount of blood droplets were also present on the walls. Also seen upon a chair in the basement was a light bulb that had been unscrewed and removed and placed upon it which would have meant whomever was waiting 
intended to be hidden in the darkness when the victim descended into the basement. The back door into the basement was unlocked with no sign of forced entry. Back up the stairs on the landing where the attack upon Veronica had taken place, there was a bent piece of lead pipe wrapped in plaster which was covered in blood along with blood pools and spatters where the struggle had taken place and the piece of the baluster on the staircase had been kicked out of place, attesting to the violence of the attack. At around 11.15pm, Lord Lucan's mother, Kate, arrived at the family home and found the police at the property. She told the police she'd received a call from her son, saying that there had been a catastrophe at the family home and that the children needed collecting. She explained the Lucan's separation and told the police where John was living, in the Mews flat around the corner, and police went to check to see if he was home, but found the property empty. But they did find his wallet, passport and other personal effects, which would suggest he was planning on returning. Lucan's car was also at home, but this was a Mercedes that had been having battery trouble and he hadn't been driving it for a while, as he'd borrowed a Ford Corsair from a friend. In fact, he'd expressly asked to have the Corsair on Thursday night, and over the weekend as he needed transport. At this point, the police were fairly certain that Lucan would return home soon, or that he would appear at a friend's house or even at the Claremont Club, where he was said to have dinner reservations. Earlier in the evening, the doorman of the Claremont said he had seen Lucan at around 8.45. He drove by in what the doorman said was his Mercedes, but he couldn't have, as the battery was dead when police tested it back at his flat. Both the Mercedes and the Corsair could have easily been mixed up, as the cars are a fairly similar shape, and both were blue. Lucan called out to the doorman to check if his friends were in the Claremont, but he didn't get out of the car. He instead drove off, saying he'd be back later. There was another member of staff at the Claremont who said that they saw Lucan on the steps at around 9pm, but no other staff had seen him, and he wasn't observed inside the club that evening by any of the patrons. A friend of Lucan's had been with him until 7.45pm, when the two went back to Chelsea, where Lucan dropped them home and left at around 8pm. No one saw or heard Lucan from 8.45pm up until the call to his mother at 10.45, meaning that he was unaccounted for during the time of the attack. The next sighting of Lucan was around 11.30pm in Uckfield in Sussex, about an hour's drive from London. Lucan knocked on the door of a friend, Susan Maxwell Scott. She was alone at home, as her husband was away on business. Lucan hadn't informed Susan of his visit, and as the two didn't see each other often, she was surprised as to what he was doing on her doorstep, miles away from his home, rather late at night. She opened the door to him and let him in. She said he looked rather stressed and upset, and his clothes were damp and dirty, as if he'd been trying to clean them. Lucan told Susan of his ordeal. He said he'd been passing the house and seen through the window that Lady Lucan was being attacked. He said he let himself into the house through the front door, ran down the stairs to help her, and as he did so, the attacker ran out of the house. Lucan said he had slipped at the bottom of the stairs and landed in a pool of blood. He said he then helped Lady Lucan upstairs and tried to help her before she ran out of the house. Lady Lucan had said she'd been attacked in the basement and that Sandra had already been murdered. He told Susan that he knew it would look bad on him, so he fled the home as he didn't want to be implicated for a crime he didn't commit. Susan believed him and said she would help him. She said they also needed to contact the police. 
and that he should stay the night and they would do that in the morning. But Lucan wasn't keen on the idea and said he had to be going so as to get back to London. That was the last time Lord Lucan was ever seen. Three days later, the Ford Corsair that Lucan had borrowed was found at a port in New Haven, abandoned, and in amongst its contents were blood smears and a length of lead piping wrapped in plaster, identical to that of the murder weapon used against Sandra and during the attack on Veronica. At the same time, two letters arrived at the home of William Shankid, Veronica's brother-in-law. In the letters, Lucan wrote about his version of events, and how Veronica would love to see him accused of murder. He stated that Veronica had accused him of hiring a hitman when he went into the house to save her from her attacker. He also said to look after the children and to explain to them when they were older that he couldn't bear for them to think their father was a murderer or for them to see him stand trial. The second letter referred to his debts and said that these would be satisfied by an upcoming sale at Christie's Auctioneers which would pay off any outstanding money that was owed. The figures stated in Lucan's letter definitely didn't outweigh his debts, and it wouldn't have helped much to satisfy them. In Lucan's letters, he said that he was going to lay doggo for a while, meaning he would keep his head down for a bit until he'd figured out his next move, but he definitely didn't want to turn himself into the police. Both letters that Kidd received had marks upon their envelopes which would turn out to be blood smears, of the same type of blood of both Veronica and Sandra. Over the next few months, the press went into a complete frenzy for the Lord Lucan story. There were sightings of him in many different places, but none of which amounted to anything when they were investigated. He still remained missing, and by this point, a conviction was being pushed for, but rather unconventionally, there would be an inquest without the suspected perpetrator being available to stand trial or to clear his own name. In which case, this meant that the standard procedure couldn't be adhered to and there would need to be an inquest instead of a court trial. By this time, Veronica was well enough to give her testimony. The results of Sandra's autopsy were available and the forensic evidence from the scene was deemed enough to go ahead with the inquest. Veronica gave her version of events from the evening which stated that Lord Lucan was her attacker. A statement given by Francis was read out, which also said she'd been told by her father to go to bed that evening, and also evidence presented, which concluded that the two women were affected by matching head lacerations caused by the blunt instrument used to attack them both, the type of which was found in the back of the Ford Corsair. There was also a third letter sent by Lucan to the owner of the Ford Corsair, which was read aloud to the jury, in this letter, Lucan said that there was an unbelievable amount of coincidences that evening which led to the situation he found himself in, such as passing the house at the exact time that Lady Lucan was being attacked. Lord Lucan did say that he knew Sandra was dead because Lady Lucan had told him that she was in the basement when she was attacked. After hearing all of the evidence submitted, the jury deliberated for 31 minutes and the inquest was brought to a close. Lord Lucan was named as the murderer of Sandra Rivet. This inquest was not normal in any way, and many people were dismayed that someone could be named as a murderer without being brought to trial in an actual court of law. This led to all inquests being disallowed the right to deliver any named murderers, and from then on in, the law was passed in 1977 to forbid this from happening again. However, 
the case for Lucan having committed the crime was fairly compelling. Lucan definitely had a strong motive, a history of violence towards his wife, debts that could be settled with the return of his house, and the many references he'd made to wanting to dump Veronica in the Solent to anyone that would listen. Lord Lucan would have known which night Sandra wouldn't be at the home on a regular basis from speaking to the children, and at the inquest, Francis's statement did say that he'd been asking what evening she'd be out of the house. Lucan knew the family routine. He knew that there would be tea made at around 9pm, and the lack of break-in would also explain the clean entrance to the house and the subsequent removed light bulb in the basement. The blood found in the abandoned Fort Corsair was the same blood group as both Sandra and Veronica, and there was blood left in all the places Lucan had been after the event, including on the envelopes of the letters. If this was a random attacker that Lucan had stumbled across, then they had a lot of coincidences that did match up. That being said, both stories independently do make sense, but there was one exception which doesn't quite add up. Both Veronica and Lord Lucan knew that Sandra was dead, but the forensic evidence showed that Veronica didn't enter the basement, but blood was found on the soles of her shoes. Veronica kicked Lord Lucan several times, and no footprints of hers were found in the basement. The only way Veronica could have known about Sandra being dead was if Lord Lucan had told her. Lord Lucan said he found Veronica in the basement and had slipped in blood, but there were only two footprints in the blood and no slip marks. If Veronica was attacked in the basement, then there would have been a considerable amount of her blood mingled with Sandra's blood, but there were only a few tiny spots, meaning these were probably splatters from the attack on the landing. No one has ever been convicted of the murder of Sandra Rivet, and all of the alternative theories of who committed the murder are also inconclusive. At the time, Lord Lucan was said to be protected by his friends, sent away to South Africa, fed to tigers at John Aspinall's private zoo, or Veronica's personal prediction that he jumped from a passenger ferry into the industrial propellers, leaving no trace of him behind. A few people who have been spotted and reported to be him simply haven't been him. The most famous being a book written by Scotland Yard detective Duncan McLaughlin, who stated a backpacker found in Goa, going by the name of Jungly Barry, was Lord Lucan. But this was just Jungly Barry, a man from St Helens who was a folk singer. Unsurprisingly enough, once Jungly Barry was confirmed as Jungly Barry, McLaughlin was dismissed from his position at Scotland Yard as his book could have resulted in a conviction of an innocent man. Lord Lucan would be 84 today, and it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he could still be alive. A secretary of John Aspinall's said that she would often arrange trips for the children to go to South Africa so Lord Lucan could see them from afar. However, George Bingham has denied this along with Lady Lucan, as she would have had to grant them access to go, and she said no such request was ever given to her. Lady Lucan lost the custody of her children in 1982, but didn't put up much of a battle to keep them. By this time, she handed them over to her sister Christine and brother-in-law William, and retreated into the Muse home, which Lord Lucan used as his flat when the two first separated, selling the large house where the murder and the attack happened. When the children were young, Veronica had an excellent relationship with Camilla. George didn't seem to care too much about his mother, and Frances was somewhat not interested in Veronica, as she had been told by the former nanny from her younger years, Nanny Jenkins, that Veronica didn't care much for her children. 
Veronica didn't speak to her children for the remainder of her life, as she was convinced that they didn't want much to do with her, and were quite probably influenced by those that cared for them that this was also the case. Those around Veronica seemed to direct barbs towards her character, and to even blame her for the murder of Sandra, often standing up for Lord Lucan. Lucan's children rarely comment on the murder at all in their adult lives, and understandably try to stay as far removed from it as possible. All three children seem resigned to the fact that their father died fairly soon after the night of the attack, with George believing that his father didn't even make it out of London, but he hasn't elaborated by what he means by that, perhaps insinuating that Susan Maxwell Scott delivered a convoluted statement to the press that she garnered from a phone call instead of a visit, as she didn't approach the police until later down the line and when she was pressed about the situation. Lady Lucan sadly committed suicide via an overdose of drugs and alcohol at the age of 80 in 2017, as she wrongly believed she had Parkinson's disease. She was found alone in her Belgravia home. Subsequently, she left all of her fortune to the homeless charity shelter. She didn't leave anything to her children. Her children commended her decision to do so, and also attended her funeral. In all the years of reporting this story, a heavy emphasis has always been put upon the disappearance and potential subsequent life of Lucan. Sorely forgetting the murder of Sandra, the attempted murder of Veronica, and negating the breakdown of a family which was split into several directions, leaving the survivor alone and the children motherless. The press, in reporting the story, didn't do much to protect the family, and they drove wedges between them with false reporting, calling Veronica insane, an incapable mother, and treating the case as a bit of fun and excitement. One of Sandra's adopted sons eventually found out from his mother that Sandra was his birth mother, and even though the truth was hard to swallow, he knows that her memory will not be forgotten now he's aware of who she was. George Bingham is also aware of the importance of Sandra Rivett's memory, and the two have struck up an unlikely friendship, even accompanying each other to court when George legally inherited the Lord Lucan title. Veronica was unfairly burdened with Sandra's death for the rest of her life, left feeling that her marriage caused Sandra to be murdered in her place, and she never recovered from this. She never met her grandchildren, she never attended their marriages, and didn't see them succeed up close. Maybe from afar, she kept an eye on them, but the life she'd expected to have and thought about when she started her family just simply didn't materialise. Lord Lucan was officially certified as deceased in 2014, making George Bingham the 8th Earl of Lucan, moving the title forward and closing the chapter on the 7th Lord of Lucan, the attempted murder of Veronica Lucan and the murder of Sandra Rivet. Thank you for joining me for part two of that episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to keep up with me in between episodes, then do make sure that you join me on my social media, all the links of which you will be able to find down below in the show notes. You can also head over to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash London to give a donation. Donations start for as little as $1 and go all the way up to 20 per month. So you can support the show and make sure that you stick around to help us make more. 
There's also an Amazon wish list, so if you want to take a look at that and see if there's anything you would like to give to the show, then that would be great as well. And thank you so much if you have done that already. It is so appreciated. And you're the best people in the world for sending me little gifts because it is so, so handy and it's really important, particularly when it comes to things like books for research. Thanks again for joining me. And if you like what you've just seen, then do please subscribe and do make sure to hit that bell notification icon so you don't miss out. And also, if you're listening to the podcast, then please also subscribe there too. Thank you for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Juice, and I'll see you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.